0: To Acts chapter 4. We'll turn our attention to this Lord's Day morning. Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading the first 22 verses. Since uh, Pentecost, in this Luke's narrative account, the apostles have been teaching and preaching and healing, and none of this has gone unnoticed by the religious authorities, the same authorities who had not hesitated when the time was right to put Jesus to death. Most recently, we read last week about the healing of a man born lame. For most of his more than 40 years, he could be found begging alms at the gate of the temple. And now he is leaping around that temple and in the court of the temple, praising God for his healing at the hand of the apostles. Something has to be done about this, and something will, but it will not go down as the religious leaders had hoped and thought it would. Isn't it fun to watch God take the wrath of men and the schemes of wicked people and not only undo them, but actually turn them on their heads, turning the wrath of God, a uh, wrath of men, that is, to his own praise and glory and designs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, to receive this great truth that you are Lord over all, and to receive it. With believing hearts, which is no small thing, Father, that in fact always requires your sovereign hand. Do this, we pray, by your Holy Spirit's presence here and right now, that we may hear your voice in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people... On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, or by what name, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Now, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what it Happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It took just a matter of weeks or a couple of months for the church leaders to realize that despite their dearest hopes, they had not managed to rid themselves of this upstart rabbi, Jesus. On the contrary, though they had managed to get Rome to conspire with them and crucify Jesus, thinking to kill the snake by cutting off its head, ten more, as it were, grew in its place. The day they killed Jesus, Jesus had a relatively small following, maybe a few hundred at best. In just a short time, virtually overnight, hundreds turned into thousands, and now they numbered, of the men only, 5,000. How frustrating for the elders and for the rulers and the scribes and the priests. No wonder they were so annoyed. I love that word there. They were annoyed to hear the apostles proclaiming not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of the dead in Jesus, for all who believe in him. The Sadducees, of course, you will immediately recognize, were particularly annoyed because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all, much less in this Jesus. Pharisee and Sadducee alike thought to have stopped all of this aggravation by killing Jesus, but as it turns out, killing him only compounded their problem. Hoping against hope that the proverb would prove true for them that persistence pays, they lock Peter and John in the huskau for the night, probably in hopes of teaching them a lesson. And the next day they make a fresh run at it, hauling them before the grand jury that consists of the who's who of the church of their day, rulers, elders, scribes, priests, even the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, their heirs as well, a real family affair for the priestly types. These same people, by the way, before whom Jesus had appeared and been sentenced to death. And courtesy of Dr. Luke and of his witnesses, we're giving, given here a front row seat of, to view the proceedings. Now, there are lots of things that we Learn from listening in on this interrogation, many things we could profitably study this morning. But what I want for us to notice this morning is the stark contrast that Dr. Luke paints for us between unbelief and belief. That is, unbelief as it truly is, and belief as we know it ought to be, as it ought to behave in the face of unbelief. We need this because we don't often come to terms with the real nature of unbelief, the unbelief of others around us, or recognize the depths of its depravity. Neither do we always adorn our belief in Christ before unbelievers the way we should. And so we uh, may take a helpful corrective here from Peter and from John on trial. And we can learn these both better, the true nature of unbelief and belief at its truest, by looking in the face of both of these in a series of contrasts. First, notice the contrast between the anger of unbelief and the earnestness of belief. The unbelieving church ministers here and elders do not hold their unbelieving views with a sort of gentlemanly-like largeness of heart, a willingness to agree to disagree. No, they are angry. They are annoyed. They are irascible enough to throw Peter and John into prison for preaching Jesus. Unbelief is a position of anger against God. It is anger against his authority to tell us what to do, what we should believe, how we should live. Not, of course, that unbelievers spend all of their time ranting aloud against God. You may never have heard your nice unbelieving neighbor say one word directly against God. But that is only because he is sophisticated enough to cover his anger. Like the rebellious child who used to stamp her feet and shove out her bottom lip or drop to the floor and roll in a temper tantrum, but has now grown into adolescence and so has learned to hold her anger inside, particularly when it serves her purposes best to hide it. Unbelievers are, regardless Of what you see on the outside, they are at the core angry against God. The arms of their souls are crossed against God, refusing to obey his law, refusing to obey him from the heart, refusing even the arms of God that are outstretched to them as they were so often, even to rebellious and disobedient Israel. Look, he even sent his son to save them, and they angrily nailed him to the cross. Joseph Stalin, on his deathbed, as related by his daughter Svetlana to Malcolm Muggeridge, suddenly sat up, groaned, shook his fist at the ceiling as if he could see beyond it, and then fell back and died. Well, that's the picture of unbelief, and that is the posture of unbelief. Fist raised at heaven, and fist lowered at his people, at you. Belief, on the other hand, need not be angry. We don't need to be angry. It is earnest its earnest and its desire to see more and more of those shaking fists transformed into open hands, lifted to God in faith and in worship. fact is, Peter and John had plenty to be annoyed about, too. And there are times, of course, that we are to be angry about some things. But they had spent the night in jail and could easily have railed back At the religious leaders, they might have demanded better treatment at the hands of their own countrymen and condemned them. But instead, while they were shaking their fists at Peter, Peter was holding out to them life and the gospel. They demanded that Peter and John tell them by what name they had healed this man. And Peter replies with a gospel sermon. Not angry railing. Not that Peter held any punches, mind you. He tells them plainly that they had crucified the risen Savior. But a straightforward statement. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no need for shrillness on the part of Christians. No need to shake our fists at the world And what has been coined, the culture war. Alas, if Christians are associated more in the minds of unbelievers with the likes of Rush Limbaugh than with a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa, there's no need for us as Christians to rail and to rage. We have we have the gospel. We have the best news ever. We're ambassadors of salvation in the world. That's who you are. Earnestness, non anger, is the demeanor fitting messengers of good news, such as you are. Second, notice the contrast between the fear of unbelief and the confidence of belief. What do these unbelieving church leaders fear? Well, they fear the loss of power. They fear the loss of of following. They fear the loss of privilege, of prestige, and of the pleasure that goes with those things. Jesus was ever a threat to them because people learned from Jesus to see right through them. Right to the hypocritical hearts that hung there in their chests dead and black and cold. With sin, those who were pretending to leadership in the church. Unbelief always operates on the basis of fear. Fundamentally, from the first day that sin entered the world, men hide themselves from God, fearful at the core. God is holy. Or as the angels say, holy, 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 and he is wholly opposed to sin. People know this, they instinctively know it, because the law of God is written on the heart. As seared as unbelievers may make their own hearts to their own sin, there is still a seed of conscience, even in the wicked, that gnaws at them, that reminds them with that still small voice that in the end they will give answer to God. They may drown that voice with pleasures. They may block it out with distractions, with drink, with drugs, whatever. But even down deep inside every unbeliever are still the seeds of fear. Faith, on the other hand, doesn't fear. Believers in Christ have been filled with a perfect love that drives out fear. Peter stands before the very men who drove Jesus to his death on the cross and proclaims fearlessly, declares to them the way of salvation, that it is through the one stone that they rejected that has now become the cornerstone. My, how far Peter has come. It wasn't but a few months ago in this sanctuary that we looked together with a new sense of disappointment on Peter, denying Jesus before the face of a girl. And now he stands before the most powerful and vicious rulers of the church and says, there's one name by which you must be saved. Reminiscent, isn't it, of Martin Luther standing before the Holy Roman Emperor and the leaders of the church of his day saying, here I stand. I could do no other. God, help me. My brothers and sisters, you need not fear anything. Nothing. Fearing God, you have nothing else to fear. What can men do to you? Kill you? I can't touch your soul. In God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Why should you ever be afraid To tell anyone about Jesus. Because they might laugh at you? Is that why you're afraid? Is that what keeps you speaking a word? From speaking a word of your Savior? These men to whom Peter was speaking had already demonstrated their ability. And their willingness to, to conspire with Rome. To secure the death of their enemies. But belief is stronger than death or the fear of death and certainly than the ridicule or rejection of men. Christians, hear me. Yours is a position of strength in the world, not of weakness, because Christ lives in you. And that simply leaves no room for fear. Third, notice a contrast between unbelief and belief that's tucked a little more subtly into the text, the treatment of human life. A man has just been healed from lameness, lifelong lameness. But these church leaders couldn't give a wit about him. In fact, they would rather that he had spent the rest of his life lame and begging alms to this That's the true face of unbelief. Are unbelievers incapable of generosity or some level of care for other human beings? Of course not. Some of these leaders probably had thrown a few coins into this man's lap uh, on occasion as they passed by him. Even unbelievers are helping today in Moore, Oklahoma, in the wake of Monday's tornado there. My unbelieving neighbor yesterday... Waited with the brakes on in his driveway to let me walk past with my dogs. You all know very nice unbelievers. But that's not their true faces. It isn't. Those are masks. When push comes to a shove, when all restraints are removed and unbelievers' passions and agendas are given full reign and expression, then you see the true face of unbelief. Philadelphia abortionist Kermit Gosnell, whose grisly abortion mill, could more than fuel an entire series of horror movies for the almost unbelievable abuses of women and their babies that took place there, was convicted this month, as many of you know, of murder. Children born alive in his office after botched abortions, he routinely killed by laying them out and taking a pair of scissors and severing their spinal cords. We gasp at the thought, but that's the face of unbelief. That's the true face of unbelief. Joseph Mengele earned for himself during the Nazi Holocaust the nickname Angel of Death. I won't describe to you the kinds of experiments he performed on women and on children in the death camps. I think it would just be too repulsive. Among the least horrific if I can put it that way, was the series of tests he performed to determine how much force it would require to break a living human skull. He, by the way, went on to become an abortionist and was an abortionist in Argentina until he finally died there in 1979. Surely, we're tempted to think, the likes of Gosnell and Mengel and Hitler and Stalin, and those sorts are the exception, extreme faces of unbelief. They're not. Those two men ranting at cameras while blood literally dripped off of their hands and the multiple knives they held in their hands, having hacked a third to death in London daylight a few days Ago. They've been labeled extremists. They're not. They are the true face of unbelief. The unbelief that lives in your nice neighbors, unbelieving neighbors' hearts. Just unbridled. Unrestrained by the external forces of civil law or by the necessity as in our day and place for now, unbelief shows itself for what it truly is. Hateful, sadistic, narcissistic, hyper-selfish, indifferent to the needs of others. That is unbelief. Belief, on the other hand, cares for others, loves others even when it does not receive love in return or receives ever and always hatred from the other. Peter proclaiming the gospel, the way of eternal life, the way of salvation to these monsters dressed up as righteous church leaders whose hands are stained with the blood of his Savior. What is that but love? The love of the believing heart, even at this point, Peter loves his enemies so much as to hold out salvation to them. One more comparison, a fourth. Notice the contrast between the irrationality of unbelief and the simple, straightforward logic of belief, of faith. Look at the minds, the thinking of the unbelieving church authorities, beginning in verse 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Plainly, even though they could not deny that a great healing had just taken place in Jesus' name... They knew it, they understood it, they saw it, but what would they do about it? So committed are they to their unbelief that they, though they know for a fact, have witnessed this to be true. Verse 17, they warned them to speak no more to anyone in this name. That, dear flock, is the logic, or rather the illogic of unbelief. Despite what it knows to be true, unbelief refuses to accept what is true and instead clings to just the opposite, what is untrue. Even educated people, educated unbelievers, leaders among men, will insist every time on clinging to what is untrue, even in the teeth of the facts and of reality even as it stares them right in the face. How, do, how else shall we explain one of the greatest forms of unbelief to, dealt, to date and held on an unprecedented scale in the world today? Evolutionism. Scientists whose own research should convince them lies face up before them of the abject failure of an evolutionary theory to explain human life, or life at all for that matter, who know themselves, the gigantic gaps that remain unclosed in the fossil records, on the one hand, the irreducible complexity of even a single individual cell, on the other, that modern science has uncovered, still hold tenaciously to evolution as their explanation for human life. Never mind the punishing and devastating blows dealt them by their own field of science. When it comes to the theory of evolution, it simply must be true. Damn the facts. Why? Why? Because the alternative is simply unthinkable. Too much to bear. Robert Shapiro, professor of chemistry at New York University and the author of a book entitled Origins, A Skeptic's Guide to the Creation of Life on Earth. Shapiro, who does not hesitate to point out and even skewer the evolutionary establishment for the faulty arguments they use to prop up their theory, nevertheless writes this. Some future day may yet arrive when all reasonable chemical experiments run to discover a probable origin for life have failed unequivocally. Further new geological evidence may indicate a sudden appearance of life on earth. Finally, we may have explored the universe and found no trace of life or process leading to life elsewhere And in such a case, some scientists might choose to turn to religion for an answer. Others, however, myself included, would attempt to sort out the surviving, less problematic scientific explanations in the hope of selecting one that was still more likely than the remainder. In other words... I will never believe in a creator. Unbelief will actually believe anything. Manufacture anything. However irrational, however absurd, however contradictory and incoherent, instead of believing in God and his Christ. That's irrational. Do you agree? But belief is not irrational. It requires no contradiction of the facts and involves no violation of basic logic. The message is plain. It is internally and inherently coherent. The eternal triune God made the world and everything in it including us. But we rebelled against him, this benevolent creator of mankind, and we sinned against him. We broke his law, and that carries a penalty, and it is death. So benevolent was that creator, however, that he himself made himself subject to our penalty. He died instead in our place. Not only that, he rose again from the dead and he rules over all things for the church. He's coming again to judge all of us, the living and the dead. And those who trust in him in this life will enjoy eternity with him in the next. But you must believe You must believe in him, and you must render yourself utterly and completely and totally over to him. You must follow him. You must obey him. There's the rub for unbelievers. And there's the joy for those who believe. Amen.